0: Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com UCTV. And thanks.
1: I'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, our whole theme. But first of all, I wanted to welcome people back. Um, and say Happy Thanksgiving past week. Uh, That was really a special time. And I think that what I wanted to do was actually spend a moment chatting with you a little bit about holidays. Uh, That this, I think, Thanksgiving holiday marks the beginning of a holiday season. And how many of us are really excited about having the holidays come? (laughs) Now, I want you to go back in time. Remember when you were, like, 10? 10? Or 11. What did you think about this time of year? It was presents. It was great. It was a great time. So what I want us to think a little bit, and a copy of the slides are at the back for those who are coming in. The holiday, I think these holidays uh, highlight many of the features of the kind of social challenges in family lives. You know, we talk about women in this uh, course, but we're really talking about families. You know, and what is it about this? It's a wonderful time to focus on the family which is um, what Thanksgiving is often about. And it's an opportunity to realize all of, for which we're grateful, which is really wonderful. And usually sometime during the holiday, you know, we reflect on that. There are all these expectations that we're supposed to kind of like walk out and be in a Norman Rockwell painting. If some, some of you don't know who that was, but it's a very famous painter with this picture of the family with the turkey. and Right, and very few of us really fit that. And I'm sure that there are a thousand stories that you are not alone. Let me just go on and say that the holidays can put additional stress on women due to competing demands from every different direction, like demands from our own expectations of what we are supposed to be doing, what we're supposed to cook or wrap or, you know, or whatever. Um, And some of us don't even you know maybe don 't want to do holidays, and then it 's kind of you know because there 's such an expectation that that you do so I just wanted to say that they can it 's the, these competing demands there 's the immediate family there 's the family you, we do want to be with, the family we don 't want to be with, whatever <laughs> work work i 'm mr osher I work at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. He called me on thanksgiving. <laughs> Because he wanted to chat. He called me the day after Thanksgiving, which is okay. Which, and I'm sort of going, maybe am I supposed to be at work today? You know. And they were tracking me down because uh, he just wanted to talk with me about a couple things, which is fine. And, and then we had an emergency, a medical emergency, and this happens. And then they are all the – I'd like to say that part of this, and this relates – I'm really pleased with the second person's comments. It relates relates to these high expectations we have. And if you're a Christian or you celebrate Christmas – We have to remember that is just one day. It's 24 hours. And it goes really fast. And if you're supposed to go to like three dinners, you know, it gets really hard. You know, what do you do with it? And this, as you get older, it gets really complicated with the in laws and the outlaws and the whatevers and the, you know, and meanwhile, Mr. Rocher is calling. So, you know, whoa. So, anyway, what. This is all going to be coming. And so I want you guys to come the next two Tuesdays, even though it's holidays. This should be a period of joy. So we can all find joy, even if it's just the joy we make for ourselves, that it's a day off. But too often it is a period of strain. And I wanted to help you understand, what is a definition of strain? There are thousands of definitions. But one is that it's a combination of two factors. On the one hand, high demand the amount of something you're supposed to do, the pace of it, the difficulty, all that. That's the amount, the demand, on the one hand, and on the other hand, low control, the extent to which you're in control of that demand. Think of an air traffic controller. The demand is extremely high, all these planes coming in, and they really, despite the name, they don't have that much control. You know, they're trying to make sure it all goes well. If you have high demand and tons of control, it's not stressful. You know, imagine if you have high demand but you know, you can just go, stop, you know, let's add another day. See that movie Groundhog Day. <laughs> have another day of the same one and do a little more work and then eventually you can catch up. If you have a lot of control, it's easier. Or you can have low control but low demand. But it's when you have this high demand to try to do so much for so many people. And many of us actually don't have as much control as we'd like. Like there's a huge storm coming, and people are having to think about that. So that can interfere with sleep, which we talked about last week, and that can affect our mental well-being, which is what we will be focusing on this week. So this week we're going to hear, we've talked about the brain, we've talked about body image and sleep, and tonight we're going to hear about Mind Your Heart, Stress, Mental Health, and Heart Disease, and then next week we'll talk about family caregiving as fate, but w- this course always comes around to the positive. What's, is there an opportunity in that? So now it is my pleasure to introduce the speaker tonight, Mary Woolley. Uh, Mary is professor of medicine, epidemiology, and biostatistics, and she does them all this is when we will not begin to feel inadequate. Remember, we're not doing that in this class. Uh, she also does primary care at the San Francisco VA Med Center, taking care of our veterans and their families, which is really precious. She is a principal investigator of, um, of a VA and National Heart, Lung, and Blood funded um, Very important study that I love the name of the study that she gave it the name, the Heart and Soul Study. It's a 10-year prospective study of 1,000 patients with heart disease where they looked at how depression might lead to adverse events in people who already had heart disease. Uh, The study has demonstrated that the adverse cardiovascular outcomes associated with depression were largely explained by poor health behaviors such as smoking, not taking medications when one should, and physical inactivity, suggesting there's a lot we can do. So she's looking at heart disease, depressed mood, and then what you can do to lower your risk. Dr. Woolley received her bachelor's degree from Yale University. Don't start doing those social comparisons now. And Boston University School of Medicine. She completed her residency and chief residency in internal medicine and then followed by a fellowship in clinical research at the University of California, San Francisco, where once we met her, we would not let her go. She has over 150 publications. She wrote this to me last week, so she probably has about 160 now. So um, I introduce Mary Woolley,
2: and I think he'll shift to your slide. I'm gonna spend uh, tonight discussing five topics. One is an overview of the mind-heart connection and how the brain and your physical body connect. The next is some reasons that these two things are connected. Why why is there a mind-body connection? What's linking up the two? The third is uh, talking about how to diagnose depression in yourself or your friends or your spouse, and Some treatment options in terms of the things that uh, people can do to treat depression and help themselves. And then I'll go over some of the cardiac benefits of treating depression, which is new and interesting and exciting uh, research. The story goes back over 100 years when uh, Dr. William Osler, Sir William Osler, was uh, looking at the heart's of patients who had died of heart attack. And he noticed that the typical heart disease patient is a keen and ambitious man whose engine is always at full speed ahead. So we're going to speed ahead 60 years to the 1960s when two cardiologists in San Francisco, Friedman and Rosenman, uh, observed that many of their cardiac patients had this really strange behavior they felt like they were needing to replace the upholstery on their chairs just over and over and over again. Like, what was happening to the chairs? And finally, what they realized is that these guys were all sitting like this, really stressed, and that they thought, well, hmm, I wonder if treatment with behavioral therapy and relaxation might help improve some of these patients. So believe it or not, they did a randomized trial, and by the way, they, they define type A behavior as a combination of time urgency and hostility. So this was a randomized trial of type A therapy in, in 10, 1,013 post-myocardial infarction patients who were followed for four and a half years. And on the y-axis, you can see the percent of patients who had a myocardial infarction or died of cardiovascular disease in the follow-up period. And then in the yellow, you see the type A counseling group, the orange, the cardiac counseling group, and this melon, I guess you could call it, the usual care group. And uh, so the type A counseling group had about 12 13% uh, risk of MI or cardiovascular death, and that was compared to 20% in the cardiac counseling and usual care arms. And this was the first time anyone had really proven that treating uh, the, your mental health could help your, your heart. It was subsequently realized, fortunately for those of us who are quite time urgent, that it's mostly hostility. So uh, the hostility story uh, started back there with the type A behavior, and then subsequent randomized trials went, went uh, further to try to understand these associations. And since then, there have been many, many, many studies about hostility and coronary heart disease, and they have sh- all of them have shown that hostility, anger, anxiety, depression are all associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. This next slide looks a little bit um, intimidating, but I'm going to take you through it. It's a It's going to be the results of this study on the association of anger and hostility with future coronary heart disease, a a meta-analytic review of prospective evidence. And what a meta-analysis is, they say, okay, let's take all the studies that have ever been done in this topic and let's combine all of them together and let's see what's the best estimate of what, what we think is going on. So, you know, some studies might find an effect Some studies might not find an effect. If we put them all together, that gives us more and more patients, so we're able to more precisely decide what's going on. And so this is what a meta-analysis turns out like, and you don't have to worry about all of these details. Uh, On the the left, those are all the randomized trials, sorry, not not randomized trials, those were all the observational studies done of patients with hostility compared to those without hostility. And the way to read these, these are called forest plots. And you can see the one down at the bottom. And a one is means that there's no difference between the two groups. The hostile people had just as many heart attacks as the non-hostile people. Uh, the, if you go to the right, it means that the hostile people had more heart attacks than those in the non-hostile group. And if you go to the left, it means that the hostile people were protected. And so in this case, they combined all of these different studies, and they came up with this pooled hazard ratio. And a hazard ratio was just comparing the risk in one group versus another. And they said that hostility people had a 20% increased risk of developing coronary heart disease. So they then thought, hmm, I wonder about patients who already have heart disease. Is their hostility done? Has it kind of given them enough grief? Or does it continue to hurt them? And they did a study looking, this is another meta-analysis of all the observational studies, 14 studies, that have looked at the association between hostility and future cardiovascular events among patients that already have cardiovascular disease. And it's, again, our forest plot with one, meaning there's no difference between hostile and non-hostile people. And uh, the, all the different studies with their point estimates along the line. And they pooled them all together, and what they got was a 24% increased risk of recurrent coronary events. So not only was it making the patients at risk for developing coronary disease, but once they had coronary disease, it was making them at higher risk for worse outcomes. It's a similar story for anxiety. Uh, This is a meta-analysis of anxiety and risk of incident coronary heart disease. And in this study, they combined all of the observational studies. You guys are getting expert at these graphs now. Uh, So one is the middle line, and that would mean there's no effect of anxiety, that anxious people have the same outcomes as the non-anxious people. Uh, But in this case, look at, there's, uh, I don't know, 25 studies, and all of them looked at anxious people versus no anxious people to try to find out if they were at higher risk of getting cardiovascular disease. And uh, as you can see, the pooled hazard ratio, again, that's the risk in the patients with anxiety versus the risk in the patients without anxiety, was uh, 1.26, meaning there was a 26% increased risk of uh, having cardiovascular disease if you were anxious. So they then asked the same question, well, what about once you get the disease? Can anxiety do anything <laughs> further? And then they, so they asked, what's the prognostic association of anxiety after myocardial infarction with death and cardiac events, new cardiac events in the people who've already had them. And here is uh, another meta-analysis. This is a lot of work that's been done in this area, with about 15 studies that compared patients all with heart disease now, but some with anxiety and some without anxiety, and showed that the ones with anxiety had a 36% increased risk of having recurrent cardiovascular events. So that was uh, pretty concerning, and then the depression story came along, and uh, it was in 1996 that Nancy Fraser-Smith, who is a Canadian researcher, published in JAMA a study where she found that patients with depression had a higher risk of uh, poor cardiac outcomes, and uh, the depression story has also generated tons of study, information and studies. And in this meta analysis, they were able to pool 146,538 patients in 54 studies, and they had 6,362 cardiovascular events. And, da da da, they were able to show that the patients with depression had a 90% increased risk of developing coronary heart disease. I I was one of these studies (laughs) in the 25, number four. And so all of these studies had shown this effect, but their samples were kind of too small to know whether is it just, you know, it's just these few patients it happens to be true in, or is it really the whole population that we're talking about? And here, as you can see, uh, the point estimate is on the right side of one, suggesting a 90% increased risk. Well, the next question, of course, is what about once you have coronary disease? Does depression cause worse outcomes in those patients? And here is another meta-analysis that evaluated patients all who had heart disease but compared the ones with depression versus the ones without depression and found that the depressed patients had an 80% increased risk of developing cardiovascular events. And uh, this is, don't worry, this is the last meta-analysis. I'm not going (laughs) to torture you all evening with them. Uh, But just to give you a sense of the volume of work that's been done in this area, it's not just kind of a few people have noticed their armchairs being worn out. This is... A lot of studies have shown that depression not only predicts the development of coronary heart disease, but once you have it, it predicts adverse outcomes and recurrent events. So uh, the InterHeart Study is a much more recent study uh, of 25,000 patients in 52 countries. And so their question was, all right, we know these psychosocial factors are a problem, but how does it compare to other things like how does it compare when you line it up against smoking or diabetes or cholesterol problems? And so they lined up the, um, the risks, and they found that the patients with psychosocial problems, and this was an umbrella of depression, anxiety, anger, hostility, so it wasn't one, one specific diagnosis, had an almost threefold increased risk of developing coronary heart disease. Now, this column on the right has odds ratios, and odds ratios are just comparing the group with psychosocial risk versus the group without psychosocial risk, or the group with diabetes versus the group without diabetes. Smoking, no smoking. So it's saying that the patients with diabetes were 2.4 times as likely to develop cardiovascular disease. Smoking, two times as likely hypertension, two times as likely... Cholesterol problems, three times as likely. And psychosocial factors were right up there with all of the things that we um, that we spend so much money and time thinking about. Uh, does anyone have any uh, questions before I move on to um, some of the reasons? Yeah. Uh, just real quick, sorry, because I, I missed it. You said depression not only predicts CHD, but... But it also... Um, once people have CAD, it predicts a worse prognosis. So once they even, the depression makes you get heart disease, but then once you have heart disease, it also makes you get more events.
0: So what you're saying, that 2 would be, some, so someone with heart disease without depression, they may not have um, as a worsening heart disease as someone with depression?
2: Would that be fair to Yeah, okay. yeah, that's a good way to put it. Oh, excuse me. Question about the last slide. There were two elements, exercise and fruits and vegetables. And I was trying to understand how that fits to the analysis. Could you go back for a second? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, when you see these odds ratios that are less than one, it suggests there might be a a protective effect. So uh, an The odds ratio of 0.9 means that there's a 10% decreased risk of having coronary disease events in patients who exercise. And there's a 10% decreased risk of having coronary events in patients with moderate alcohol consumption. And a 30% decreased risk in patients who, uh, who eat, have a good dietary habit. Sure. The question was, what are some of the biological factors? You know, when we say anxiety or depression, what are we? What's going on? Is it elevated stress hormones or adrenaline or inflammation or what is it that's inside our body that these these terms refer to? And I will um, go go into that. I saw one other hand up. Uh-huh. The question was about how how to measure these things, and uh, there are many different ways to measure them. The gold standard is to use what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is a psychiatric kind of the Bible of psychiatry that tells you exactly what all of the different psychiatric diagnoses are and what the criteria are. But many, many other scales have been developed to figure out whether someone's depressed or whether they're hostile or anxious, and I'll go through some of those later. All right. Uh, thank you for those questions. So in terms of reasons for this association, about 10, 10 years ago, I got interested in why depression leads to cardiovascular events. And so I, I recruited 1,000 patients who had heart disease to begin with, and then I followed them over time to see you know which ones developed heart disease and and why that happened. So our goals were first to confirm that depression predicts these poor outcomes because a lot of people have, despite all the meta-analyses showing that this association exists, a lot of people still think it's kind of a chicken-egg thing where, well, maybe it's just that patients who have worse underlying heart disease don't know it yet, and that's making them depressed. So people were not as convinced as they are probably today that, depression most certainly predicts adverse outcomes. And then the second goal was to determine the mechanisms that are responsible for this association. And as someone mentioned, there are many potential reasons that depression might lead to elevated cardiovascular risk. There are lots of biological things that happen with depression, like elevated stress hormone levels, cortisol, elevated noradrenaline levels, poor vagal tone, which means You're not as much able to relax Uh, inflammation. Depression is associated with higher inflammation. And there are also a lot of behavioral consequences of depression, like patients don't eat as well. They don't exercise as much. They smoke more often. They don't take the medications they're supposed to. And so how are we going to sort out all of these different potential mechanisms? So we just measured them and tried to follow the patients over time. And our first question was at, at baseline, you know, what's more important to quality of life for these patients with heart disease? Is it how well their heart works? Ischemia means do you have lack of blood flow to your heart? Ejection fraction means how well does your heart squeeze? Exercise capacity means how far can you go when you do a treadmill test? So those three those are three hard measures of how the heart works. And then, how does that compare to depression? And uh, in answer to someone's question, uh, we use the patient health questionnaire to measure depression in this study. And uh, when you do the patient health questionnaire, the depression scores are divided into three categories, zero to three, which is minimal, four to nine, which is moderate, and then 10 or greater, which is consistent with a DSM, a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Diagnosis of Depression. And so those are the three different columns. And in the left axis, we had the percent with poor health status. And uh, on the y-axis, it tells you the different measurements of health status. And so you, as you can see, the depressed patients had about a 60% risk of lot, feeling lots of angina, lots of symptoms, uh, and a 70% increased risk of f- having being very limited by their cardiac disease, poor quality of life, poor overall health. And uh, there was a dose-response relationship. So that's not that surprising. I mean, if you're depressed, you're going to feel worse, and so what, what's the big deal? Well, the interesting part was that when you adjust for all of the cardiac disease variables, when you account for... Their ejection fraction, whether they're getting enough blood flow to their heart, how much they can exercise on the treadmill. None of those things are as strongly predictive of quality of life as depressive symptoms. So, in this uh, study, we found that the depressive symptoms were associated with a 1.8 or about a twofold increased risk of having bad symptom burden, a threefold greater risk of. Being limited physically, a threefold greater risk of having poor quality of life, and a twofold greater risk of having poor overall health, and that was in contrast to these measures like ejection fraction and ischemia that we doctors focus on all the time, that really didn't affect the quality of life of, of our patients. Exercise capacity, which is a um, how far you can walk on, on the treadmill, was significantly associated with quality of life, but not as strongly as depression. So we concluded depression is more important to health-related quality of life than these cardiac measures. Then we started to ask, all right, well, what are the things that might link those two? And as I mentioned, there had been tons of research on depression and stress being associated with inflammation, elevated norepinephrine, Heart rate variability, endothelial function, which is kind of how reactive your blood vessels are, genetic factors that might predispose people to both depression and heart disease, uh, physical inactivity, of course, a behavioral uh, problem, smoking and medication adherence and dietary factors, all those behaviors might be the reason. Um, Some people thought mental stress-induced ischemia, where where, uh, they have shown that if you... Um, give someone a mental stress task and they have coronary disease that they can actually make their heart have less blood flow by the stress of it. And so we thought, well, maybe that's, that's what's going on. So we measured all of these things and we found that depression was indeed associated with all of these things. So um, we proceeded to try to sort out, well, okay, We're gonna follow these patients over time and see which ones have heart attacks and strokes and heart failure, and then we're gonna review all the medical records to make sure that these are actually the diagnoses they had, and we're gonna look at how depression predicts all of those outcomes, and then we're gonna try to adjust for each of the different uh, mediators, each of the different factors that might explain this association and see if it goes away. Uh, And so during this follow-up period, the annual rate, so this is the percent of patients per year who had cardiovascular events being myocardial infarction, congestive heart failure, stroke or death, uh, was in a dose response related to uh, the depression score. And this patient health questionnaire, I'll tell you the the full story about in a few minutes, but... It essentially gives you a range of depressive symptoms, from none to very severe. And the annual event rate was about 6% in patients who had no depression, and it went all the way up to 15%. So every year, 15% of those with the most severe depression were having these cardiovascular events. And so we started thinking, okay, well, let's adjust for each of these potential mediators that we've been thinking about. Let's see if when we take, take account for um, cortisol or norepinephrine, the association between depression and cardiovascular goes, events goes away. And surprisingly, this was very surprising to me, none of these biological mediators affected the association whatsoever. Even though depression was strongly associated with elevated cortisol, elevated norepinephrine, sticky platelets, shorter telomere length, this certain kinds of genes, when you adjusted for those, depression still predicted cardiovascular events. So uh, we looked at The behavioral mediators and found, lo and behold, that when you adjusted for smoking and medication adherence and physical activity, that the association went away. This is an example of a health behavior that is associated with depression and may play a substantial role in the adverse cardiovascular outcomes. Depressed patients in yellow, not depressed patients in orange the percent with medication non-adherence on the Y-axis. And as you can see, the ones with depression were much more likely to report that they weren't taking their medications, they forgot to take them, they decided to skip them, and then having that medication adherence in turn predicted who was going to get more events. Uh, So this is the full model. I don't want to intimidate you with it, Uh, so I'm going to walk you through it because it's pretty simple once you, um, once you get to the bottom line. And so what we did in the top was we said, okay, what's the risk of cardiovascular events in the depressed versus the not depressed patients? And the hazard ratio, which is just the risk in the depressed versus the risk in the non-depressed, was 50%. So when, you, when you're not adjusting for anything, depression is associated with a 50% greater risk of having cardiovascular events. Well, that's not really fair because, of course, the depressed patients have worse coronary disease to begin with, and so we need to take account for worse ejection fraction and history of myocardial infarction and diabetes and heart failure and so on. And so once you take account for all of those things, uh, depression was associated with a 30% greater risk of cardiovascular events. Inflammation, which is one of the biological mediators, actually did have some role in the association. But I personally think it's because patients who exercise less have more inflammation. So I think that the inflammation probably comes at the bottom. Uh, and so then we adjusted for smoking and medication nonadherence and physical inactivity. And as you can see, the association between depression and cardiovascular events melted away. It went down to 20% increased risk, 18% increased risk, and then virtually no increased risk of cardiovascular events. So this showed, and I think it was a pretty uh, novel finding at the time, that health behaviors were really the the, the main um, problem linking depression with cardiovascular events. And all the biological stuff is interesting, but in my own opinion, is probably the result of poor health behaviors. So I think probably patients with poor health behaviors have higher norepinephrine and higher cortisol and more inflammation and so on and so forth. This is a, a graph. The red line is the risk of events, cardiovascular events, in patients with depression. And the black line is the risk of cardiovascular events in patients without depression. And the y-axis is time and months. So as these patients were followed all the way out to 84 months, (laughs) the cumulative risk of depression was uh, 70% in those... Sorry, the cumulative risk of cardiovascular events was 70% in those depressed versus about 45% in in those not depressed. And once you adjusted, once you accounted for all of the behavioral mediators they were exactly the same. So adjusting for those factors made the association melt away. We weren't the only uh, group to find, uh, find a link between behavioral factors and cardiovascular events. Uh, this group from the United Kingdom looked at psychological distress as a risk factor for cardiovascular events, and they concluded that the association between psychological distress and cardiovascular risk is largely explained by behavioral processes. Therefore, treatment of psychological distress that aims to reduce cardiovascular risk should primarily focus on health behavior change. Uh, Then another study of patients in the cardiovascular health study, it's a cohort of 5,000 older adults who've been followed for almost 20 years and People use the data from this cohort to try to answer research questions. And again, in this study, they found that adjusting for physical inactivity took away the association between depression and cardiovascular events. This was an observational study that followed patients over time to try to find out whether the number of poor health behaviors was associated with mortality. And one of the, in in science, one of the key factors in proving an association is to show that there's a dose-response relationship. So if poor health behaviors are the reason that depressed patients have more cardiovascular disease, then really the number of health behaviors should matter. And in fact, that's what they found. Uh, This graph on the left shows the cumulative survival. So it's kind of the opposite of the, the previous one showed the cumulative risk and this is just showing the death. So it's the opposite. And um, so the patients with no health behavior problems had the best outcomes and the patients with four uh, poor health behaviors had the worst outcomes. They were the ones who were dying the the most quickly. And uh, they, combined, they, they uh, concluded that the combined effect of poor health behaviors on mortality was substantial, indicating that modest but sustained improvements to diet and lifestyle could have significant public health benefits. Uh, okay, so um, I, I'll take any questions at this point, and then I, I'll move on to the next section.
0: Cumulative, or is it each single factor would decrease it for the physical inactivity?
2: um Which slide? Just describe the slide that you're talking about. That's one. This one. Is this cumulative, or each individual factor has this? I can't say it's a reduction or an increase. In Th- that's a good question. The question was... Uh, when we adjusted for each of these things, were we adjusting for inflammation and then only adjusting for smoking and then only adjusting for medication non-adherence, or were we adding them? So the model that had inflammation was, the, was also adjusted for the things before it, and the model that adjusted for smoking was also adjusted for inflammation, and so on and so forth. And it was cumulative. They were added one on top of the other. So that, in that and then altogether they... So the following slide would show the top hazard ratio, the 50% difference, and then once you've adjusted for everything, it's flat. Thank you. Good question. Any others? Uh, Okay. Uh, The diagnosis of depression is quite simple, uh, and you can probably help a lot of your friends, uh, because depression is incredibly common. Uh, It is present in about 5% of the general population, about 10% of patients with general medical conditions, about 1 in 5, 20% of patients with heart disease, about 1 in 3 patients with heart failure. The difference between heart failure and heart disease, heart disease means that you've got blood vessel problems that they're not supplying enough blood flow to your heart. Heart failure means the muscle itself has kind of died and is not squeezing as well. After coronary artery bypass grafting or or acute coronary syndrome, which is another uh, cardiovascular problem, the rates are even higher. So how um, how do we diagnose depression in these patients and try to try to help them. There is an easy way. Uh, There's a two-question instrument that uh, identifies, basically rules out depression. Uh, If you ask someone during the past month, have you often been bothered by feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? During the past month, have you often been bothered by having little interest or pleasure in doing things? If someone says no, then they don't have depression and and you're done. Uh, And the key is, have you often been bothered? Like, have, have has most of your time been bothered by these symptoms? I mean, any of us would say we're bothered by feeling down, depressed, or hopeless on certain days of the month. But um, having it be, you know, more often than not being bothered by by these symptoms. If you answer yes to these questions, unfortunately, it doesn't tell you that you have depression. It's... it's uh, the numbers of sensitivity and specificity aren't, aren't really important, but essentially about half of the people who screen positive are going to have actually d- depression. And then, so how do you decide if they have depression? And there's a mnemonic. These are the nine criteria that are in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for depression. And uh, the mnemonic is SPACE, DIGS. And uh, you have to have at least uh, one of the two depressed mood or lack of interest symptoms, and then other symptoms that would add up to a total of five symptoms. So if someone had problems with sleep and uh, loss of appetite and depressed mood and feeling guilty and thinking they might be better off dead, that would be a person who would qualify for a diagnosis of depression. And this is the patient health questionnaire, the nine-item patient health questionnaire that I mentioned earlier. And it asks, over the last two weeks, how often have you been bothered by any of the following problems? And essentially lists the same symptoms that we just saw on the space dig side, slide. Uh, and it But it quantifies them. You know, it was, was it not at all? Several days, more than half the days, nearly every day. And when you take this and... If someone scores 10 or greater on this scale, then that is consistent with a DSM diagnosis of major depression. Uh, If someone is depressed, there are a few medical things that should be ruled out. Hypothyroidism, uh, the thyroid gland, uh, is important for your metabolism, and sometimes if it's... Low Patients can get kind of depressed and feel like they're slowed down. Uh, normal grief reaction is, is obviously uh, normal to, uh, to experience, and, and so what I usually keep in mind myself is that if they've had grief and it's gone on for more than two months, then I start to think, well, maybe there's depression on top of this grief. Uh, but if it's just within the first two months, anyone would be, expect to be... Uh, upset. There are some medications that cause depression like antiretroviral uh, medications but there's one myth out there which is that beta blockers cause depression and they do not cause depression. Uh, there have been a lot, of, there's been a meta analysis, should have brought it for you all uh, that shows that um, beta blocker use is not associated with depression and then I uh, if someone has depressed, uh, depressive symptoms, they, one should always rule out the possibility that they, also, that they have bipolar disorder, which is uh, alternating between manic symptoms and depressive symptoms. One question always comes up, especially at the VA. We have so many patients who have, we call them dual diagnoses. They've got depression and they've got substance abuse. And so people always ask well how can we ch-? they just need to stop drinking so that we can then sort out whether they have depression and actually sometimes the patients won't even be evaluated because they're drinking so much but this study looked at the proportion of patients who relapsed in a drug uh, a drug um, uh, sorry an alcohol treatment program and found that the ones who were placed on an antidepressant were much less likely to relapse than the ones who were not treated with an antidepressant. And so to me, this said, you need to treat the depression first, and then once the patient is not depressed, then they can perhaps get rid of their substance abuse problem. But it's very difficult to expect the patient to get rid of the substance abuse before you treat the mental health condition. One issue that comes up a lot in my own clinic patients and uh, in in society is that people feel kind of embarrassed, like, oh, well, you know, I I shouldn't have depression, or, you know, my husband doesn't have depression, or my kid doesn't have depression, and they feel like they somehow don't want to share it with other people, and so there are some ways that you can do, deal with that, and one is to just acknowledge and validate, like, yep, a lot of people feel that way, and that's okay. Uh, another is to emphasize the biological etiology of depression. So some people will think, uh, well, if it's you know a biological disease, then, then I have a right to feel this way, whereas if it's kind of all in my head, then I, it's my fault. I should just snap out of it. Um, Pointing out the high prevalence and the loss of productivity that happens with depression is another uh, effective tool, and telling patients that treatment can improve not only their mental but physical health. This uh, study looked at the global burden of diseases and projected for 2030 what are going to be the things that are most burdensome in, uh, in the world, global mortality and burden of disease. And they found that the 10 leading causes of worldwide disability uh, were projected to be number one, HIV, AIDS, and number two, depressive disorders. That is how much disability depression can exert on the, on the people who suffer from it, even more than ischemic heart disease. And these uh, percents are the, this calculation they do to calculate the percent of life years lost due to this disability. So you might uh, have 5.7% of just less productive time uh, during, um, during a lifespan. And then in the um, comparison, they looked at high-income countries and low-income countries. And in the high-income countries, unipolar depressive disorders were first Uh, The other low-middle-income countries, of course, sadly, perinatal conditions, lower respiratory infections, diarrheal diseases, HIV-AIDS, unfortunately a lot of those are preventable. But once we uh, got through the preventable diseases, unipolar depressive disorder still uh, reared its ugly head. And so they calculated that the total um, life years lost due to depression in low-middle-income countries was uh, 56.5 million life-years lost, and in high-income countries, 10.6 million life-years lost. The other uh, approach, uh, which is one of my favorites, is to describe famous people with depression. There are a lot of people uh, like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and... Oprah and Brooke Shields and Sting and uh, all sorts of others who have uh, been very open about their struggles and so sometimes this helps people feel more normalized Kitty Dukakis has been a major uh, proponent of, of uh, depression education and she actually has terrible depression herself and has to have electroconvulsive therapy which is incidentally a safe and effective treatment for depression. So she wrote this whole book about her experience. And then Ryan Lefevre, a sportscaster, uh, so this was for all the women in the audience, and this is for all the men in the audience (laughs) who can relate to uh, the sportscaster who also was very open about his his experiences. Uh, Before I move to the next section, are there any questions? Yeah, the question is, well, how much of your mental health can you control versus not control? And I think that's an open question that many people are spending their lives researching because, unfortunately, we don't really know what mental health problems are. You know, depression is a constellation of symptoms, but what's really going on between the synapses in the brain? And anxiety is a constellation of symptoms, but is it the same synapses? Is it different ones? Are there different neurotransmitters involved. And so we, we, don't, we don't really know. The only reason that we know that these kinds of neurotransmitters are involved is because we kind of by accident discovered that some of these drugs help depression, like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and tricyclics happen to help people. So, oh, I guess that means norepinephrine and serotonin must be involved. So in order to answer the question of how much is in our control versus not in our control? I think we would need to know more about exactly what's what, what's going on biologically in these in these people. With that said, I uh, I think that there is a lot that we can't control, and there are plenty of patients, people who have horrible mental illness that, you know, they, they are just born with. Uh, with with. And it's very, they can, of course, change the course of their illness and make it better rather than worse. But it's not their fault that they are born with the genes that predispose them to that illness. Uh, and then there are things that uh, people can do to help themselves. And I th- what I like to um, describe to my patients is that it's not kind of whether you're up here or you're down here in the grand scheme of life. It's, you know, let's figure out where you are and let's kind of do what we need to do to maximize your little sine curve. So what's the best we can do for you? This comes up a lot with chronic pain, because these poor patients have horrible chronic pain, and there's just nothing we can really do about it. I mean, you can give them narcotics and morphine, but then they're asleep all day. So if they want to actually function, they have to live with the pain, and that's that's really hard. So I, uh, I talked to them about, well, what are the things we could do to make your pain the least burdensome that it can be and uh, help them to accept that this is something they unfortunately have to live with but also have control over where they are in the sine curve. The question was about how much stigma is, comes from inside versus outside, and I think it's from both. Um, our society is becoming more accepting of mental illness, and I see this a lot at the VA because when our Vietnam vets came back, you know they, they were embarrassed to say they had PTSD. And it was a really shameful thing. But now the Iraq and Afghanistan vets come back, and there's a lot more understanding of the importance of PTSD, and there's a lot more attention, and it's much more accepted. So I think uh, things are changing, but we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. The question is kind of how much is nature versus nurture? You know, what what are the environmental factors that may Influence depression versus the biological factors, and again, there's no clear answer to that. I've, they're both involved. It's definitely true that a patient, who, one patient who uh, has the same biology and has a very traumatic childhood, is going to be much more likely to develop depression than another, their twin with the same biology. And it's also the case that someone who might have a protective gene, where they're just really resilient. Um, I think Margaret's one of those people. She's just so resilient. <laughs> uh, so they uh, then those people just uh, manage to avoid the, um, the trajectory of going t- towards depression because they're able to cope with these life stresses and just move on. Mm-hmm. It's a great question, um, and I'm going to get more into it uh, with the treatment, but Uh, The question was about how much is depression affecting heart disease versus how much is heart disease causing depression. And it really is bi-directional. I think it's a circle where depressed patients are less likely to take care of themselves, more likely to get heart disease. Patients with heart disease have worse symptoms, more burden. They're more likely to get depressed, and so on and so forth. And the treatments to try to prevent those things – Um, can go both ways. So if you um, have depression and you exercise, you're going to be less likely to develop heart disease. And if you have heart disease and exercise, you're going to be less likely to develop depression. So they go on to both sides of the the equation. Okay. Uh, When initiating treatment for depression uh, with uh, my patients, I, I try to emphasize the biological etiology of depression, even though we don't really know what's going on in there. I say, you know, whatever it is, whatever the chemicals are, are doing in your brain, it, it's not normal. And it's just like diabetes, where your body is not producing enough insulin, and we need to give it the insulin back. And so I try to help them think, well, if, if it's just a matter of correcting something that's wrong, they feel... Um, <coughs> Sorry, if it's a matter of restoring something to normal, they somehow feel better about that than correcting something that's wrong. Uh, I always encourage patients to consider therapy, and uh, there's very good response. Over half will respond to treatment within six months, and uh, most patients will eventually respond to some therapy. And there are lots of different management options out there. There's uh, drugs, pharmacotherapy, Uh, psychotherapy, the combination of those two. There are alternative therapies that I'll talk more about, like exercise and bright light therapy and St. John's Wort. And uh, it's really a personal decision uh, for the patient in terms of which which therapies they feel most comfortable with. So for pharmacotherapy, uh, these are the antidepressant medications that are available in generic form, so they're really cheap. Uh, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are by far the easiest to tolerate and are are, are very uh, effective. I would say the second uh, best, in my opinion, is bupropion, which is a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. These other uh, medications, I don't try unless someone has failed the first two. So I really put the first two in uh, the category of should definitely try these. And then the the vaccine, mirtazapine, and the tricyclics, I only do if someone really has not responded to the others. And uh, especially tricyclics, uh, you know, there used to be a category of antidepressant medications called MAO inhibitors, and they were so toxic. And they are used for some patients with very, very, very severe depression. But they... They became so toxic that we just stopped mentioning them in these kinds of lectures once we had the SSRIs and bupropion, which are much easier to tolerate. And I feel like tricyclic antidepressants are going to go in that same direction because they are associated with greater cardiac uh, mortality, and they do increase arrhythmias. So um, they're going to be moved down the list as we get other options. Yeah? Yeah. Reuptake, is, yeah. Is it
0: selective? And is it, does, it, does it sound like it creates
2: serotonin? What, it, what is a reuptake inhibitor? Uh, so a cell um, secretes serotonin, and then it takes it back in. And uh, so a reuptake inhibitor would be blocking the um, receptors that take the serotonin back into the cell. Uh, but the cell is still going to have some serotonin in it, and it's going to still spit out the stuff. Uh, but the reuptake it's, is going to be blocked, and so that, um, that's how the SSRIs work. For the dopamine, the same idea. Uh, the, the receptors that take it up from the, um, the synapses and the space between the neurons uh, uh, block the reuptake. And then um, was there another question that you had? Uh, The two, um, just as examples, so that you can get an idea of, well, what would be involved in uh, treating depression, these are two of the most common ones that we start with. And the initial daily dose for um, citalopram or Celexa is usually small, and you start small so that the patient can see whether they have any side effects and whether they tolerate it. And then uh, once the patient feels that they can tolerate it, then you go up to the usual effective dose, which, depending on um, the person, is 20 to 40 milligrams. And then the maximum dose, if the person hasn't fully recovered on that effective dose, is 60. And bupropion has a similar um, gr- gradient. And bupropion is especially useful for patients who might have smoking uh, smoking problems or alcohol use. It, it has great... It's FDA approved for smoking cessation, and in my experience, also seems to curb um, uh, addiction for other other kinds of um, substances. Um, the main side effects, sexual dysfunction is extremely common and very burdensome. Uh, the literature from the drug companies say that it's present in about 10 to 20%, but in my clinical experience at the VA, uh, it's, it's much higher. Um, s, uh, the SSRIs cause somnolence in some people and insomnia in others. So depending on which they cause, you either take them in the morning or you take them at night. Uh, the GI side effects usually go away after the first week or two of therapy. So if you can just get through it, uh, then you don't have to worry about those as much. Sweating is something that diaphoresis is sweating, uh, happens, and uh, low um, low sodium happens in, a, in, in rare cases. Uh, bupropion headache uh, happens in about a quarter of the patients. Uh, anticholinergic means like dry mouth, dry eyes, agitation and anxiety. Uh, bupropion really sometimes stimulates people, so they may need they may not be able to take it in the evening because it might keep them up at night. Uh, It should not, it's not safe in pregnancy and there's a very rare um, risk of seizure. Well, how long will it take to recover once you start one of these things? Uh, This is a graph with the left uh, y-axis showing the proportion of patients who recovered and the um, x-axis shows the timing from the start of therapy to six weeks to three months to six months, and as you can see, by six months out, um, 80% of patients will have recovered from uh, their first whatever you you try first, the psychotherapy or pharmacotherapy. Um, at six weeks, maybe a third, and at three months, somewhere in between. So it does take a long time. You know, whatever it is that's going on in the brain, it doesn't change very quickly. It's not like taking, uh, you know, a Motrin and you've, your headache goes away in 20 minutes. It it takes six weeks to start to even feel um, any, any benefit from these medications. Uh, psychotherapy is another very effective management option. Uh, this uh, study looked at patients with mild to moderate depression and compared the ones who were treated with drugs versus psychotherapy. And they concluded that both the medication and the psychotherapy are considered first-line treatments. so they are equally effective. And uh, that in some studies, actually, the psychotherapy has a little bit of longer-lasting effect because the psychotherapy changes the way people think, and then they're able to continue to apply that, Uh, for the rest of their lives. There are um, several different types of psychotherapy. Uh, The first is behavioral activation, which is increasing um, and focusing attention on positive life experiences, (laughs) making sure that there's something nice that you do for yourself at least once a week, Uh, making sure that uh, you Focus your attention on um, things that have gone well. So instead of thinking, you know, oh, gosh, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. Well, I got this done, and I did this well, and why don't I just focus on that? Because uh, this is not science, but uh, in my opinion, I think changing the way that your brain thinks to make it more focused on positive things makes you more likely to feel positive about other things. And so the cycle continues. And actually, in the United Kingdom, they now have an online uh, behavioral activation uh, therapy, and it's six sessions, and the patients uh, are uh, assigned to this um, six-session web-based therapy, and it essentially helps patients focus their attention on these life experiences and increase the experiences and write down the things that they've done for themselves. And it's uh, remarkably beneficial. It's it's just it's called um, beating the blues. You can look it up online. Um, and it's just as effective as, uh, you know, one-on-one counseling with a, a therapist. Cognitive behavioral therapy uh, is a way of kind of changing the way that one thinks uh, some people kind of focus on the things that are not going well, and this helps you focus on the things that are going well and also to identify some of the maladaptive uh, thoughts that are really you know, not reality-based, and some people start to feel like they are, they're perceiving a person that really they aren't. Uh, problem-solving therapy is a very specific kind of therapy uh, where if, if there's an environmental stimulus for the depression especially, the, the patient can be helped to break larger problems down into smaller pieces and identify specific steps towards change. And interpersonal therapy is uh, focused on uh, relationship problems if that's seems to be what's triggered the depression. Uh, so there are um, also studies that have looked at combined therapy, pharmacotherapy, and psychological treatment. Oh, I told you there wouldn't be another meta-analysis, and (laughs) here it is. Uh, So um, on the right side of one, it favors medication plus psychotherapy, and then on the left side of the one one line, it favors medication alone. And as you can see, the overall effect for uh, treating with psychotherapy and medication Uh, is about about two. They they have a two-fold greater likelihood of getting better. And this is more true for patients with severe depressive symptoms than for mild to moderate. Mild to moderate people do fine with either the psychotherapy or the pharmacotherapy. But for patients who have severe depression, they often benefit from both. Uh, So the This systematic review concluded in patients with moderate to severe depression, psychological treatment combined with antidepressant therapy is associated with a higher improvement than drug treatment alone. There are also alternative types of things that you can use to treat depression, and I'm going to go through some of those right now. One of them is exercise, and exercise is my favorite. Actually, I hate exercise. Uh, but I force myself to do it, and it's my favorite therapy to tell patients about because it's free and uh, and doesn't have any bad side effects except maybe a sore, you know, sore muscles. So uh, this is a uh, systematic review that combined all the different randomized trials tr- looking at exercise versus no exercise as a treatment for depression. It wasn't even a treatment for heart disease or any of the other health benefits, but this is just specifically for depression. Does exercise make people better? And they concluded, indeed, exercise does improve depressive symptoms. Uh, this was, a, oh gosh, another meta-analysis. <laughs> the effect of exercise in clinically depressed adults uh, and this study um, combined all of the different randomized trials of treating depression with exercise and found that the... So here, actually, the, the forest... This is confusing because the forest plot is not you, you, uh, centered around one, which it should be. This was must have been a mistake in the publication. Um, but anyway, to the left means that something is protective, and to the right means that something increases the risk or increases the likelihood that that outcome will happen. And so here, uh, exercise treatment is associated with a 60% reduction in depression. That's the negative 0.4 is uh, from a scale of 0 to 100. How much of the effect is it taking away? And so it's taking away 60% of the effect of of depression um, treated with exercise. And this was just published last year. Uh, Bright light therapy is something that people aren't as aware of. And uh, this was one randomized placebo-controlled trial uh, which looked at uh, depression scores in patients who were treated with bright light therapy versus not. And uh, the patients treated with bright light therapy, it's not bacon, lettuce, and tomato, BLT, it's bright light therapy, are in the open circles, and the patients who are treated with placebo are in the uh, closed black dots. And so the depression scores are on the left, and the higher depression scores uh, are on the top, and the lower ones are on the bottom. And as you can see, the patients with the bright light therapy ended up dropping their depression scores much more than the patient's who were on placebo, and uh, they found that there was a 33% decrease in depressive symptoms among the placebo versus a 54% decrease in the light therapy group, and that was a statistically significant uh, difference, both the mean and the percent change in the, uh, in the score. The mean, the mean is just what is the average score on this scale, and the percent change means how much have you changed since the beginning. And there are lots of online uh, outlets for these kinds of things, and they have them to to meet all different kinds of lifestyles. And the final alternative therapy, uh, Saint John's Wort, uh, is does does have a role according to this Cochrane uh, review, uh, but it, one has to be very careful because it has a lot of Interactions with other medications, like you cannot take it with SSRIs uh, because it can cause a serotonin syndrome, which is agitation it 's very dangerous, it can kill people, hyperthermia, tachycardia rigidity. but this uh, meta-analysis did conclude that um, the available evidence suggests that the, the hypericum a- extracts tested in the included trials were superior to placebo and can be similarly effective as standard antidepressant medication for patients with mild to moderate depression and that they, they have fewer side effects as long as the patient is not taking anything else. Like maybe a 28-year-old who has uh, mild to moderate depression should try St. John's Ward because uh, if they're not on any other medications, uh, why, not, why not see if it helps? The other... Uh, incidentally, the other thing to know about antidepressant treatment is that there's no harm trying. Some people think, oh, if I start this statin for my cholesterol, do I have to be on it for the rest of my life? And what if I miss a day? And uh, the antidepressants are not like that. It's not dangerous to stop and start them. You wouldn't want to do that very frequently. But if someone tried one for a couple of weeks and then stopped, that's perfectly safe. And sometimes pay, people feel um, more comfortable just trying something rather than thinking that they're uh, subjecting themselves to a, um, a, gu- a guarantee of several years of therapy. Uh, I don't know if anyone in the audience is um, in the pregnancy years, uh, but it's very important to treat depression in pregnancy It's best if cognitive behavioral therapy can be used, but if medications are necessary, the SSRIs are the the safest. There is a very tiny increased risk of birth defects with uh, the SSRIs, but the absolute risk is extremely low. So, you know, one, uh, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but, you know, if you go from one in a million to two in a million, That's not much to worry about, but it's still considered a doubling of risk. So even though the numbers don't, um, the, the, the absolute risk is low, the relative risk can look very high. And then if someone has a suicidal plan, it's incidentally it's very common for patients with depression to think about death a lot and feel like they would be better off dead because it's pretty miserable to, to have depression. And so when patients feel they might be better off dead or think about, well, what if I killed myself, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go out and do so. Uh, but if someone starts saying, you know, well, what I would do is I'd take this gun out of my closet or I'd walk out on the bridge and jump off, um, or I take this overdose of medications, that's when you really, that's an emergency, and that person needs to be referred to a psychiatrist. Uh, if they have other diagnoses uh, for, um, that, that aren't, uh, de- that in addition to the depression, then psychiatrists are better than primary care doctors like me at taking care of them, and if they haven't responded to medication So um, any questions about treatment options? The question was about meditation and heart disease. And I uh, am not familiar with the study, but there is a lot of uh, interest in mindfulness-based stress reduction, not only for its effects on mental health, but for its effects on physical health. And um, I, I, uh, I believe that there are studies in the... Literature that are showing that mindfulness-based stress reduction can help with depression. I've never seen one that uh, shows that it can prevent heart disease, but it would be much more difficult to study that.
0: There was a new study out of Denmark, a 10-year study that just showed pretty significant reduction in heart
2: disease for mindfulness-based meditation. for meditation. There you have it. Meditation prevents heart disease. In Denver, <laughs> <laughs> they're easy to fix. <laughs> yes. Uh, that the question was how long before conception should someone start stop using Bupropion or Saint, John, Saint John's Wort and. I would need to defer to your obstetrician or your physician on, on, on that question because um, I'm at the VA, so all my patients are men, and I don't ever, I've never, ever had a pregnant patient in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, l- let me just be clear about people get really alarmed when they hear birth defects, but the risk of having... a bad pregnancy outcome is terrible in depressed patients. So depression is associated with increased risk of um, depression in the offspring, and uh, it's certainly associated with poor health behaviors in the mother. And so if there is depression, it should be treated. It's, It's important to do so. With that said, there are slight increases in risk uh, of birth defects, and so if there's an option, if someone can respond to psychotherapy, then that is a better way to go.
0: Or, as you mentioned, and I, I wanted to thank you, I was really impressed your exact words regarding ECT. If you guys know, a shock, you said, which incidentally is a safe and highly effective treatment? Thank you.
2: Um, yes, so ECT is, is it sounds really scary to have uh, one's brain zapped, but it's it's very... Effective and actually, I had the pleasure of uh, talking at the same conference as Kitty Dukakis at one point, and so we were invited out to lunch afterwards. And I was asking her about the ECT, and she said that she doesn't use any antidepressant medications at all. She just relies on ECT. The the question is about well, what is light therapy doing that's changing your brain so that it reduces depression? And I don't think we know. It would be nice if we understood what, the, what was going on inside the brain. But unfortunately, this, the way we seem to figure out what's going on inside the brain is by discovering these accidental therapies. And so maybe the discovery of bright light therapy will lead someone to understand, is it melatonin-related or is there some um, uh, other neurotransmitter that might be connected to light? Uh, that's an, The question is about what are the mechanisms by which exercise might reduce depression. And again, it's an active area investigation that we don't have a clear answer to. Uh, but there is, um, I will say that there is a lot of interest right now in what's called neuroplasticity, where the brain actually can change uh, in response to the environment. So it's not like you're born with a brain and you're stuck with it till you're 85, uh, that Even when you're an adult and supposedly all of your synapses have been um, fixed, uh, there are changes that can happen in the brain uh, with things like exercise that's done regularly. Oh. Okay. Uh, Treatment uh, has a lot of other benefits, like... uh, helping people with chronic pain and substance use and sleep difficulties uh, and it can help patients lose weight uh, have better glucose control and less cardiovascular disease and better quality of life and uh, this was a really creative study that uh, evaluated treatment for depression and cardiovascular risk factors at the same time this is where I think we need to head in terms of doing a team-based approach where everybody is treating everything together instead of, you know, the psychiatrist does the depression and the cardiologist does the statins. And this uh, was a primary care doctor. Uh, Primary care doctors worked with this collaborative care team, and they were able to show that this model improved blood pressure, improved uh, glucose control, improved uh, lipid levels, and also improved depressive symptoms. This uh, is a randomized trial. It was called the COPEs study, which stands for Coronary Psychosocial Evaluation Studies Randomized Trial. And uh, in this trial, they actually looked at cardiovascular outcomes to see whether treatment with depression might prevent heart attacks. And there have been a lot of other studies in the past that have attempted to do this, but this is the first one that was ever able to show a significant reduction in cardiovascular events with uh, the treatment for depression. Uh, In the intervention group, uh, this is the risk of getting depressed, going from the top uh, being no depression and then um, moving down to uh, the lower the, the bar gets, the greater the risk of depression. And this compared this intervention with the usual care and found that it was associated with a reduced risk of cardiovascular events. So that was pretty exciting. And this other study, uh, it wasn't of patients with depression, but it used cognitive behavioral therapy in patients with heart disease and found that uh, the recurrent cardiovascular events were far fewer in the patient's who are treated with cognitive behavioral therapy than usual care. Cardiac uh, rehabilitation exercise programs have also been combined, and again, this is the team-based approach to treating the patient. We're thinking about the whole body, the mind, and the the mental and physical health together, because I think that's the best way to improve both. And uh, this is a new trial that's ongoing where they've added cardiac rehabilitation (coughs) stress management to the standard, you know, lipid reduction and blood pressure training and so on. So uh, in in conclusion, uh, mental health conditions are associated with an increased risk of heart disease. Uh, This association is largely due to health behaviors. Uh, There are many treatment options available, uh, therapy does reduce depression and improve quality of life. And I think the way of the future is for combined therapy for mental and physical health to be uh, applied by the primary care physician so that these con- conditions can synergistically improve uh, with treatment for both. Okay, thank you.